space right now. And uh, so we just want to get everyone to stand up with me, please. Welcome to Metro Praise every Tuesday at 7. And let's open with prayer. Father, I thank you tonight for bringing us all here. It's a little cold. The weather's changing. But the love here, God, is going to warm our soul tonight. God, the songs, God, are going to make us feel so close to you. And Lord, I just ask you to bless tonight. Help us all to find our purpose. And for the friends that we've invited and the people that we've asked to come out tonight, we pray that they'll come out and join us for a wonderful time in your presence. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Adam, take it away. Know that God loves you, amen. How many of you guys know that God loves you? Now, let's sing this song. It's called Nothing But the Blood. And what can wash away my sins? And what can make you whole again? Sing nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood. And nothing but the blood. Jesus, wash it away. Wash. What can wash away my sin? And what can make me whole again? Nothing but, nothing but the blood. And nothing but the blood. Jesus, I'm missing no precious.
to know each other, maybe switch seats, get close to somebody. But we welcome you to Metro Praise tonight and uh, just hang out with somebody for a few moments. Danny, would you do me a favor and put on the lights here for me? Thank you.
uh, Adam, our youth pastor, working at the schools and touching the high schools. So there's so much to be a part of and to get involved in. So we just really want to see God touch your life. And our goal is 100,000 souls in this city with 50 churches and 500 around the world. If you believe we can do it, can somebody say, let's do it? Come on, we're going to be radical. Hey, man, this is the new series right here. Everybody say, change my life, pastor. Amen. I want to change your life, and I want to help you discover the purpose of your life. So here's a flyer right here. I want you to take a bunch of these, because now you can see with our new setup, we can handle about 150 people here, okay? I want to see 150 people here next week. Let's all bring 10, amen? So just grab like 100 of flyers, man. Seriously, grab 100. Grab a big stack, because I got like 5,000 of them. Put them on car windshields, put them in dorm rooms, put them on uh, restaurants that you go to, you know, ask for permission, put them in friends' hands, and let's get people out here because tonight is going to be an awesome message. It's who am I? Next week is going to be why am I here? These are the four W's of life. The third week is going to be where do I go when I die? And then the all-famous where are my keys, okay? And I'm going to tie that last one in. You can think right now there's going to be a twist. I'm going to tie that last one in to all the other points, so that'll be the great finale. You want to come and be a part of this. And just by the way, we're on Facebook. These are JPEG files on Facebook and the videos on Facebook, YouTube. So just, you know, just YouTube it, Facebook it, Twitter it, and get the word out there. Can everybody say, let's do it? Amen. Guys, I'm just so thankful that we're here and you're here and this is how we make a partnership. And that's the way the church has to grow as well through giving. So I'm just going to ask that those of you who consider this your church, that man, you were just dig down deep in your heart of generosity. You can see there's not a lot of us here yet. It's going to grow. So every one of us here counts. And I believe the Bible, when it says a tithe, it's for us today. So I'm a tither. The leaders in our church are tithers. I was taught this before I was ever a pastor, you know, for my mom growing up. And basically what this is, is 10% of our income we give to God. So if I would make $1,000 a week, how much would I give to God this week? $100, amen. You're a winner, winner, chicken dinner. Come on. So if I made $4,000 this week, if I was banking this week, man, how much would I give to the Lord today? $400. You see, you just move that decimal point, you find your tithe, 10%. Three good reasons on why we should all give a tithe to the Lord. The first reason is it breaks the heart of greed. When we have payday, don't we get excited to spend money? We all do. I know I do. want to buy something. Well, what about give day? You see, when we get excited for give day, which is church day today, then we're showing that our heart is greedy. But if we're only wanting to receive and not to give, then we have a greedy heart. So by giving that 10%, when I get that paycheck, I'm breaking that heart of greed off myself and going, no, this is not time to get due diddles and just, you know, payday and spend day. I want to be happy about give day. So that's one reason, break the heart of greed. The second reason is, is the Bible says they're storing up treasures in heaven. If you and I really believe the Bible, then there's a heaven. How many believe there's a heaven up there? Amen? I mean, maybe a different dimension, maybe not necessarily up there, but we believe in a heaven. Amen? And the Bible says we're going to be up there a lot longer than we are down here. So we need to store up treasures for that place, that place of eternal rest. Uh, the Bible says that there's going to be rewards up there for the work we've done down here. So when we give that tithe and say, Lord, I'm preparing a place after I leave this earth. Because you can't take a U-Haul to the grave. Everybody know that? Uh, you can't take it there with you. You could sure try. You know, they could dump it all in there, but it would just be wasting, right? And then it would actually turn to rust and all of these things and actually eat up your flesh. Do you know that? You know that all of these uh, metals and things can actually become dangerous and actually begin to turn your flesh 
in, inside out. You could die just from the metals of this gold and things of this earth. And the Bible says, don't store treasures on this earth for they rust and fade away. But store treasures in heaven. And then the third reason, everybody say the third reason. Amen. Thank you. The third reason is because we get to change the world. When we showed up here, it was because people back there at our other campus said, Joe, let's change Wicker Park. When we go out and do evangelism Saturday on the west side of the Pile Park in Cicero, you know, we're changing the world. And you could say, I have a part of that. So by giving your tithe, you're breaking the heart of greed, you're storing treasures in heaven and changing the world. And then the Bible talks about an offering. So those of us here, we love to give. We got 90% after we give that 10% to God. God says, give extra and pray for blessing upon missions. Pray for blessings upon your life. And one of the things I challenge you to do, you see an envelope there? You can make it out to Metro Praise Checks or do it online. You can give to missions. And we have right now 200 churches, some bigger than this, some smaller than this, meeting in four different nations around the world. So when you give that offering, you can designate it to the building that helps us get building funds or to the missions, which helps us change the world. Would you just pray with me right now as we believe God? to do some awesome things in our life. Father, we just thank you that it's better to give than it is to receive. And Lord, we pray that right now our heart of greed would be broken, our stinginess, the poverty, the lack, and that, God, we would be givers. No matter what we have, we would be faithful to tithe off of it and to give extra to the missions and to those who are hurting. And God, I pray that as we do this, you said when we give, it will be given back to us, pressed down, shaken together, running over. So, Lord, we pray that you'll bless us to be a blessing. You'll bless our jobs. You'll bless, God, our work and our family. And, Lord, I even ask for the economy in this nation. Lord, on our dollar bills, it says, in God we trust. But it seems of lately, it's been in money we trust. Lord, we pray that our hearts and the government would turn back to trusting in you, one nation under God, and that you would bless this nation to make this nation great again in your sight. In Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Let's say what Paul said on the count of three right up here. One, two, three. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Will you rejoice as you give today? It's going to come by. And uh, just look at the video as you're giving and be inspired by what God is doing around the world. Thank you. <laughs> I just want to pinch it. You know what I'm saying? Who's the one? The, the, the dose, uh, the pill, berry. There we go. Okay, so when I do that, you guys all do this little noise, okay? Here we go. Y'all ready? Woohoo! <laughs> amen, amen. It's fun. Okay. I would have you do that to your neighbor. That's a little inappropriate. Church, but if you're married to your neighbor, go ahead and do that. Uh, or if you're in a romance with your neighbor, I guess. Um, Hey, man, we want to talk about this subject tonight, about uh, evolution, because, you know, when we're going to be answering the big old question, who am I? What do you think uh, a lot of people are going to say today? Well, I'm just an animal. I've evolved from a lesser species, and 
I've been, you know, a product of evolution, survival of the fittest, and uh, my purpose in life is just to propagate the human race. Uh, that, that may be what a lot of people say. As a matter of fact, uh, today, modern science has developed its own religion. A lot of you don't know this, but it's developed its own religion. And a religion is a state of believing, uh, uh, believing in something, or the state of believing, in something that gives your life meaning and purpose or to a higher power. And so what is the religion today of science, scienceism, humanism, naturalism, is basically believing in the power of the universe is the all-powerful being and the universe out of nothing exploded and uh, then over time began to make life and then that life became complex and then that complex life became you and I and then here we are thinking about why we're thinking. And if you've ever thought about what you're thinking about, that's called contemplation. And what makes us unique as human beings is we think about what we think about. Has anybody ever thought about what they think about before? Are you thinking about you thinking right now while I'm talking about you thinking? You see, and so, oh, you know, once the Bible gets opened up and people begin to start sharing the Bibles of beliefs of who we are, uh, the first thing that we're going to hear is what, uh, you know, in opposition to this, is what we're being taught in schools, and that's evolution. And so somebody may say, well, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Well, the problem with that is, is that I can believe in God and science at the same time. So it's not God and science are opposite each other. It's not like when you believe in God, you stop believing in, uh, you know, gravity or, you know, physics. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's some great Christians that have done a lot in the field of physics. You know, like Sir Isaac Newton did more for uh, the Bible than he did for physics, but he's known as being one of the greatest physicists of all times. And, uh, you know, I just want you to think about this question today. Do you believe in evolution? Because that may change a lot of what you're thinking that, uh, you know, the Bible's going to say today. You may not think you have a lot of purpose in your life. If you came from a lesser species, say, maybe a chimpanzee, Lucy, I don't know if anybody's ever seen some of these fossil records, but uh, if you believe you came from an animal, you may not agree with me today. So I want you to ask your neighbor, do they believe in evolution? And then we'll come back and do our little discussion here today and have some fun. So look at your neighbor and go, neighbor, what do you think? What do you believe? So let's get some good discussion here today. Come on, you gotta discuss. Some of you are so far apart you can't discuss. That's why you need to sit by each other.
open up group discussions. Most of you guys all know how we do this. Anybody have any comments or questions, let me know right now. Josh will run to you uh, with the microphone and we'll uh, get you to interact with us. Any thoughts about evolution today? Questions, comments? This is the fun part, right? Nobody says anything. Okay, there we go. Let's get started. Go ahead. Good evening. Uh, you're talking about Darwin's uh, opinion about revolution, am I correct? Yes, or, you know, any form of evolution at this point, but if you want to be specific, Darwin, sure. That's why I want to come to my mind. Yeah. In my opinion, he was an atheist. We did not come from apes. Yeah. You know, I mean, God created the ape in the first place. Mm -hmm. So what you're saying is you just believe the Bible. God said it, bang, and happened. Yeah. Amen. That's it. Do you know that, do you know, do you know the degree that Charles Darwin had? Do you know what he had his degree in? Does anybody know? Oh. Does anybody know what his degree in was? He had a theological degree. He had a theological degree. That was his uh, bachelor's. That's what he had, a theological degree. Most people don't know that. He wasn't a scientist by degree. It was his hobby to travel around and research animal life, but his one college degree was a theological degree. Harvard used to be a Bible college, by the way. Princeton, Yale, Ivy League schools, so on. If you sort of think about it, if you're a Darwin fan, he did all of that. He trained in theology. Had a sharp mind. Don't agree with him, but he still had a sharp mind. Anybody else want to add to the discussion? Go ahead, Jerry. Um, I was just going to say that I think that um, just from what I've studied, that Darwin always said that it was just a theory. He couldn't really prove that evolution really was. It was just a theory. And I do believe that people, like things can evolve from their own species, but that we were created, and so were those things, but over time, those known species can evolve. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, because we as Christians don't want to say arguments that are not true, and that's actually one of the things that is not true. Uh, to say that Darwin said it was just a theory, therefore he didn't believe it, is, is, is actually not true. Uh, theories and science is the best way to establish a fact and truth, so everything in that sense could be a theory. Gravity could be a theory, uh, physics, types of quantum physics theories, but it's still a fact to the scientists, as close as a fact can be. So we don't want to say, uh, because it's called a theory, that there's somehow this huge question mark over it, and that people didn't believe it was actually true. So I just want to correct that. Because we as Christians, we don't have to resort to, uh, you know, saying things that aren't true to get our point across, because I, you know, I want to be fair to the other side. But uh, in what you were saying, that is the belief that most Christians have, and that's what I believe. Uh, some Christians have termed it microevolution versus macroevolution. Well, once again, there's really not a difference, but let me just explain what most Christians mean by this. Uh, Macroevolution is a change from one species to another. This would be like an ape-like creature becoming a homo sapien, like what we would see today on the hominoid. Um, Microevolution would be small changes within the species. This would be like uh, the, be the beaks of the finches that Darwin saw on the Galapagos Islands. He saw some that had to go to harder nuts and, you know, eat things that would cause the beak to become sharper and harder. It was smaller. The ones that had to go into softer fruits and pull, pull it out were a little bit longer. And I think the difference between the two beaks was like a half of a centimeter. It wasn't like one was like huge and small. But uh, that's what I believe. But anybody else want to share what they believe? Yes, let's uh, go back up and then we'll uh, wrap it up and see if anybody else has anything to share. Go ahead. Uh, Noah. And God told Noah where he got two goats, two birds, that was the start of multiplying. Yes. I mean, you know, it wasn't all, you know, we're not, or did man come, you know, 
God created man by, you know, therefore the dust. Then he created Eve. You know, go forth and multiply. That means Darwin's a theory, about theory. We came from age. Doesn't make sense if you're a Christian person. Yeah. Anybody else want to add to that? Anyone else? That? Here we go. I was waiting for Ryan. Come on. Sorry, so um, I think regardless of what you feel about whether or not you're guidance or anything like that, uh, the evidence revolution is just too overwhelming. Uh, there's no possible way that we can see the, the amount of evidence that we have and that might be true. You're a biology student, right? Yeah. So what would be some evidence, you know, to share with those who you know, your friend behind you, he's just saying, it, it just can't be. What would be some of your just uh, silver bullet, this is best evidence, if you don't, if you deny this, you can't. The absolute best evidence for it is the genetic evidence, which is the degree of relation from one species to another, and then the relation of their power. So you would basically say that in the gene code, uh, and that comes from DNA, correct? Correct. So you're saying that we, uh, as living beings, even non-living, but uh, like like uh, Darwin believed that even fruit, you know, has the origin from, from life. Life, the fruit, and life more complex into uh, to different types of reptiles, etc. So you would basically say that because the same building blocks and the gene code are found in all of these things, it would prove that they're they're coming. From a common origin. Is that, is that what you would say? Uh, yeah, they do come from a common origin. If you map it out based on the relation to one another, so it's a wonderfully accurate looking tree, like almost perfectly matches up with the fossil methods. Does anybody want to share it with Ryan? I would want to share something. If I were you, let's get, let's get our friends, get an open Winfrey show. Maybe it will turn to a Geraldo Rivera show. You might remember those shows. You might remember those. Those are the way. Yeah, don't share it. There we go. Uh, like you said, too, uh, the Bible, the sins of the parents fall on the children. There's your genetic background, Christian. And like he told them, well, the one you're crying for him, weep not for me, weep for your children. Maybe he was talking opinion. It's my opinion that he was talking about genetics. Okay. Let me just respond to that uh, idea of what I would think about genetics. And let's keep the mic next to Ryan uh, if we give him a chance to have the last word here. If um, we can show the, the common building blocks, the genetic code, and I think we've talked before, Francis Collins, uh, for all of you who don't know, I've talked about him before, who uh, was in charge of the Genome Project. Uh, it's now finished, it's done, he's moved on to other things. He's a Christian, and he wrote the book, The Finger of God. Um, he himself believes in evolution, theistic evolution. God is the prime mover behind it. So as a bottom line, would you say that evolution itself disproves God or just simply just shows how God could have made the earth? Or the made, made the living things right, the master line. So meaning would it be would it, would you would you agree that somebody like Francis Kyle, who obviously, you know, he knows the uh, he knows the gene folks and he's a geneticist, and he would say, Hey, I'm still a Christian, but I can say God did all of this. Would that would that be something sufficing to you, or do you think evolution and a belief in God can never be uh, God -like? It is possible. Wonderful. Let's give it up for Ryan. There's the last word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. Wonderful. We're so glad you're here. Let's open up the Bible to Psalms 8, 3 through 5. And uh, today we're going to talk about who am I? Now, if you don't know your name, 
uh, you don't know how you got here, uh, we can help you in just a little bit, okay? So we're not talking about, who am I? I forgot my name. No, you're Joe. Okay, thank you. No, we're going to talk today about who am I and the concept of the world, the universe, who are you in the eyes of God, most importantly. And we're going to look to Psalms chapter 8, 3 through 5, and I think you guys are going to have a great time with it. On the back of your note announcements, I actually have some very uh, note, notes, excuse me, and they're to help you to follow along and even bring home as, as a study guide to help you go through the Bible. Uh, once again, of course, all these messages are free, mentionpraise.org to go back and listen. But let's look at Psalms 8, 3 through 5, David speaking here. I love how big this is. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. According to the Bible, we are the creation of God. It says it so plainly here, but of course, you look in your Bible, the book of Genesis, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible actually goes on to say that mankind was made in his image and that man is made just a little lower than the angels. So that means if an angel came here, he could beat you up, but it would be a little bit of a fight for him, but he could still beat you up. And I believe the reason why we're not strong as angels is because God wanted us to live as his children. Angels are more of the servants of God. They're more of the workers of God. And God didn't want us to have to be these massively powerful beings. God wanted us to be his children made of the dust of the earth to be in his image. And the Bible says that this man, even though he's lower than the angel, he is crowned with glory and honor. Where we get this word crowned is literally from crowning kings. And the crown itself meant that this person was honored. And this person had glory. And glory in this sense means that he has respect, all. And what God is teaching us here through the psalmist David is that God made earth, he made the heavens, he made angels, but the apex of his creation, the, the, uh, the, the Sistine Chapels of his artwork is you. Think about that tonight. You are the most special creation of God. You may want to see angels today, but God wants to see you. You may want to go and travel all over the world and see the most beautiful things that we have on this planet, the Grand Canyon, the uh, Himalayan mountains. You may want to go to the furthest places of space and go to the uh, different constellations. But you know what God wants to do? God wants to be with you today. God created the heavens and the earth. He created all of these angels. And he said that you are the one that he crowns with glory and honor. There is nobody else in the Bible or nothing else in the Bible that is considered that awesome. As a matter of fact, he sums it all up in Genesis. We are made in his image. And I want to give you some things today that the Bible talks about so that you can continue to grow in your knowledge of who he made you to be. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 126. The first thing that I want you to learn today from the scriptures about who you are is number one, you are a creation of God. You are God's creation. Genesis 1.26 says, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. One of the neat things that you want to notice here is the plurality of God speaking. 
He's not nuts talking about, you know, uh, make-believe friends here. It is the Father speaking to the Son and the Holy Spirit enacting it. The triune God is a perfect sign, uh, a perfect relationship, seeing in the relationship of the Father commanding the Son and the Son sending the Holy Spirit. And they all have the divine nature together. And so when they made man in their plural image, that means man, and we're going to get to later, was made in a dual of a, a trichotomy, meaning body, soul, and spirit. So that's the first thing that you see is that we're complex beings made in the image of our complex God. And the next thing that you see is that God makes us to have dominion over the earth. So are we supposed to be ruled by animals and the, the seas and the hurricanes or the creatures of the ground? No, we are supposed to rule over these things. We're supposed to rule over all of the earth and all of the creatures of the earth. And then right here is where I want to just pause for a moment and give you the best evidence that I have today that you are God's creation. And I believe these three evidences will help you, whether you believe in evolution or not, to understand that there's no way God could not have created you or created this planet. Whether he used evolution or not is for another day's discussion. I don't have time to get into it. My personal belief is he did it in six days, about 10,000 years ago. But that doesn't matter if you're sitting here today. You're already here, so let's deal with it now. Do you recognize God was behind it? I believe you can see from these three proofs. Number one, the proof from first cause. This is called the cosmological argument. Everybody say cosmological. cosmological. Thank you. The cosmological argument basically says this, that if anything is in the natural world, it has and needs a cause. And anything in nature that has a cause can be known with enough time. And so what we have to ask ourselves is what caused everything we see here today? Well, somebody may say the Big Bang caused what we see here today. And do you know that that was actually a win for creationism when the Big Bang was discovered uh, around the uh, early 1900s? Because before that, they had believed that the world and the universe, excuse me, the universe was eternal. You know who one of the people who believed that? Albert Einstein actually believed in an eternal universe. And as he began to discover in his theories that he was wrong, he still wouldn't accept it. And he actually caused, called it the greatest failure of his career was to not admit that he was wrong. And it was Edwin Hubble that brought him to the telescope, that the Hubble telescope was built. And here Albert Einstein with Edwin Hubble could see the redshift of the stars and that the world, uh, the universe, was continually expanding, which proved that if it was continually expanding, it had come to one time at a solidarity at a start. Well, that was a win for the Christians that we can now say, here's the cause. I know, I believe in the Big Bang. God said it, bang, it happened. I just know who banged it, right? Well, what happened after this time began to work? Uh, you know, the scientists didn't want to admit that God could be behind it. And now what they've come up with is an explanation called the multiverse, the multi-universes. And this is very popular today, that now universes could pop out of nothing out of a, another source that makes universes like how we make popcorn. But the problem is all we've done is we shift the evidence of the beginning of our universe to now the beginning of the multi-use, multi-universe maker. Now somebody might say, well, aha, Joe, we got you there because if you're saying we need to explain where everything comes from, who then made God? And you've thought of that before. If everything needs a cause, then who caused God? Who is God's God? And does it continue to go back and back and back? No, because listen to the definition of the cosmological argument. It's everything in the natural world. 
And we're proposing the idea that God is not in the natural world. God stands outside of the natural world. Now, how can you think about the natural world? Matter, space, and time. God is outside of matter, space, and time. And for somebody to say, well, you know what, Joe, that's just making the God of the gaps argument. And I could say the flying spaghetti monster made matter, space, and time. But here's the problem. It doesn't matter if we call it the flying spaghetti monster or God. Anselm's argument, it's called the ontological argument, is this. The greatest of all conceivable beings would be God. So if there is a flying spaghetti monster, is he the greatest conceivable being? If he is, then God exists. It doesn't matter to me at this point, does God exist in the form of a flying spaghetti monster or in the form of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? The argument from the first cause is simply teaching us that there had to be a divine mover that moved everything, a divine creator that created everything. And then we move to the second proof. Do we see this in everyday life? Proof from design. And this is called the teleological argument. Everybody say teleological. Thank you. You sound really smart today. I appreciate that. And the teleological argument is simply, does the universe, the world we live in, does it look designed or does it look like it's all thrown together? Let me take an example. Have you ever been to the mountain ranges in Colorado or anywhere in California? Any beautiful mountain ranges? Anybody ever been there? Raise your hands for you. Isn't that beautiful? Have you ever seen a face chiseled out on any of those mountains? Well, maybe if you've been to Mount Rushmore, but other than that, have you seen one? No, you might be able to look at mountain ranges like clouds and say, well, I can see a nose there in the eye. But how about not just one face, but how about four faces? And not just four any old faces, but four very distinct faces. How about four faces of presidents? Now, if you were walking by Mount Rushmore, what would your explanation be of those well-defined faces in the mountain range? Would you say water, wind, and rain over billions of years created those faces by time and chance? No, you would say that this came from a creator. And another way to look at it is if you were walking along the beach and you found a watch, would you say that this watch, watch evolved from the washing of water against the sand for billions and billions of years? No. And when you look at the human brain, you look at the human gene code, and when you look at all of the complex things in molecular biology, you see design. When you span to the universe with the microscope, you see design. The proof from design simply says this, that God is a designer. And even people like Francis Collins, who may believe that God used the agent of evolution to create the world, still has to give credit to where did this information come from. Because at one time, you're going to have to have nothing giving something something. And you know what nothing is? If you don't know what nothing is, nothing is what rocks think about, okay? Think about that. Nothing is what rocks think about. And so how can nothing create something? It wouldn't make any sense. And so somewhere along the line, the information has to be brought into being. That's the argument from design. And then the third argument, which may seem to be the most opinionated, but I actually think it's the most relevant, if you'll think about it today, and that's proof from morals. And this is called the moral argument. Everybody say the moral argument. The moral argument. Thank you. And the moral argument says there is good and evil and it exists. Now ask yourself this question. Does good and evil exist by matter of opinion or by matter of fact? Now think about that. Does it exist by matter of opinion? Because if, if good and evil exist by matter of opinion, then Hitler was only wrong by what? Matter of opinion. Somebody else could have said he was right. 
And there are actually people today that believe he was right. Uh, people who say that 2 plus 2 equals 5 could be right if it's a matter of opinion. And we don't live that way on this earth, do we? We actually believe that raping of little children, genocide, and these different things are really evil. But how can we say that without a God? Because if we are just animals tending to the flock, we would have no conscience. Let's say, for example, that YouTube video that showed the young two-year-old child in China being run over by a car. Anybody see this yet? The video is of a two-year-old child being run over by a car. And, uh, you know, I'm actually tempted right now just to play this for you, just as a social experiment. How many would like to see the social experiment today? Amen? So I'm actually going to play this video for you today, and I want to ask you, you know, we're not going to get to another discussion, we'll discuss it at the end of service, but I want to ask you, is this wrong by opinion, or is it wrong by fact? And I believe a uh, Chinese, let's say, child getting run over, it should be, it's up right now, everywhere, all over the internet, and I think you guys would be appalled by this. So let's take a look at this as an example. Here we go. And uh, it is quite disturbing. And uh, if, you, if you can't watch it, uh, you may not want to because it actually you know, is a disturbing video. This is running a little slow. As it's getting ready, I wanted to share with you that we as Christians and believers in God have always believed that right is right and wrong is wrong. And if we take God seriously, we ought to believe this as well. But if somebody doesn't believe in God, the right and wrong factor now just becomes a matter of opinion. So I want you to look at this and you'll tell me if this is wrong by matter of opinion or because of the fact that hopefully I can stall it up here and get it up. Because I really feel it's good enough for us to watch. Okay, this video made it 10 content. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Let's try it one more time for another video. There's the child, there's the truck. This is watching it. Oh, it's not up there, we can up there. Then I want you guys to see that this is just kind of sort of wrong. Really wrong. Uh, can you lower the lights for us, please? We don't want to see this. It's going to be right here, so I'm going to wait for the lights to go down. Just pull down the two overhead ones, please. There we go. Thank you, sir. Okay, so here is the child, as you can see. Here is the guy. It's hit, run over. He thinks maybe I hit something. What should I do? I don't know. Run over it again. Now the blood, now the child's laying there. Now watch this, people walk by. Because this is a society that doesn't believe God gives more what's right or wrong. I'm going to talk about this in just a moment. One person walks by. Second person. This is in China. Third person. So because we don't have time to watch the whole thing, people keep going by. The van goes by again here. And what we have to ask ourselves 
is, is that kind of wrong? Is that wrong by a matter of opinion? Or is that really wrong by a matter of fact? And that's what happens when we get into discussions about morality. Danny, can you put back on the lights for me, please? When we look at, thank you, sir. When we look at the evidence for God, how many felt that could be okay? You just felt that could be okay. How many were appalled by that? That's not okay. How many, if that would happen a hundred times, for whatever reason, that would not be okay? Now, why is it on the inside of us that we have this thing called morals? If we are just animals, and animals have a very unique way of relating with each other. You might have seen the YouTube video where a dog saves another dog. They'll do certain things to an extent for each other, but nothing like humanity. As a matter of fact, they'll eat each other when they get hungry. They'll deny each other the right to live. They'll, they'll eat their young. See, animals have a great big difference between us because we don't just act on a herd mentality. We act out of our heart. Whether or not we're Chinese, we love that child. Now, let me just explain to you why in China this actually matters <clears throat> to our discussion. Excuse me. China has over 30 million Christians, and it's the fastest growing nation of Christianity. And the reason is, is because communism has taught there is no God and there is no real right or wrong for the last 50 years. And that's the result of it. And now people know it's a bunch of baloney. And they know there's a right and wrong. And they know that the Bible is the only answer to it. And that is why right now in China, the young adults, the people like yourself, are all turning to Christ. Now notice what is happening in America. We're turning in our political system and in the school system towards an atheistic, towards a communistic system that China has adopted, and that is the result of it. And if you don't believe that we're already there, think about the 40 million children we've already aborted in our clinics. And China has believed in population control for many years, and that results in babies being killed by the tens of millions. So do I believe that you are just an accident? No, you're a creation made by God. Number two, I believe that you are a spirit that has a soul that lives in a body. Turn quickly with me to Genesis chapter 2, and you'll see here God speaking. And God is making us here. It says, the Lord, formed, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Everybody say living being. Thank you. So we see here that man is not just the dust of the ground. The animals might have had the same type of background in their physical body, their eyes, the material of their brain. But you know what makes an animal different between you and I? Is this thing right here we call a living being. And if you look into the Hebrew here, it's actually called a soul. In the New Testament, it's called a psyche. It is the psychosis of the mind and how you think of yourself. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's what I was talking about before. Man is a trichotomy. Trichotomy simply made, meaning make up of nature, and tri meaning three. Man is a spirit. He has a soul, and he lives in a body. This is what the Bible teaches us, and this is where we can begin to understand how we're relating to the world. For example, the spirit on the inside of us is that which gives us life and consciousness. This is the difference between this and a cow and an animal and between other creatures. 
This spirit gives us a consciousness, but the consciousness by itself would, would simply be floating off to space, maybe like an orb, you know, or some type of an energy. But it has to be rooted in a personality or inside of a person. And so the person is the soul, the mind, will, and emotions. So think of it this way, your life force on the inside of you, which gives you your consciousness, is operating right now in this world through the mind, will, and emotions that makes you who you are. It's not just your brain. Your brain is the organ that your mind uses. Think of your mind being that which is untangible, which is connected to your spirit, and the brain, the organ, is what gives that tangibility to the physical world you live in. And then lastly is your body, the five senses, that allows you to move and operate in the world. Let's not get confused, let's go slowly. The spirit is your life force from God. Your soul is your personality, your mind, what makes you think about what you think about, your will, what you desire to do and not to do, and the emotions of how you feel and how you get along in life. And then your body is the shell in which you're living in a physical world. Now, I want you to not only take my word and the Bible's word for it, but I want you to learn here a great thing from John Eccles, who is a Nobel Prize-winning for physiology. He was a neurologist, and to win the Nobel Prize, you've got to be pretty smart. How many believe that? Okay, if you don't even know what the Nobel Prize is, you're not so smart. We're going to pray for you. How many know what the Nobel Prize is? Okay? Yes. yes. You've got to be really smart to win these. These are the awards that are given out the best of their field recognized by people from many nations. This man, I don't know his religious belief, and it doesn't matter. But what I do concern myself with is that he has developed so many things in the mind and in neurology that other people would recognize this and give him an award. And this is what he said in his book, Evolution of the Brain and Creation of Self. This is what he said. He said, I maintain that the human mystery is incredibly demeaned by scientific reductionism. Remember we talked about today that people are making science their religion? That it's not just good enough to say I can believe in God and I can believe in science. People are beginning to say we don't need God at all. All we want to believe in is science. Well that it becomes a religion unto itself. And it's called scientific reductionism, meaning if science doesn't have a tool to measure the soul, well then the soul doesn't exist. If the scientists can't look at the spirit in the laboratory, then the spirit doesn't exist. And let me just pause right here and just give you some things to think about that science cannot prove. Do you love your mother? Does anybody here love their mother? Yeah. Do you love your mother? Do you know that you love your mother? Can you prove it scientifically? You might be able to say, well, I can prove it by my actions, but I can imitate those same actions and not have the love you have. Somebody can say, well, I love my mother because I hug her. Well, I can hug her and not love her. I love my mother because I go to her house every Tuesday and have her favorite food and I like it. I can imitate and do the same thing. But does that mean I feel the way you do? Somebody might say, well, we can measure these feelings and emotions and we can see the brain activity and it's highlighting these things. That's true, but are we finding the source of where those things are being activated? No, we're not. We're simply seeing, once again, the mind, the emotion, using the brain as an organ to express itself. As a matter of fact, you can think about what he's about ready to say is that the soul and spirit together, this incorporeal, non-tangible part of man, is actually living in an earth suit using the organs and bodies, like how a spaceman in a spacesuit uses those, uh, that apparatus to move around in space, we're using it to move around in earth. 
Let's look at this again. I maintain that the human mystery is incredibly demeaned by scientific reductionism with its claims and promissory materialism, which it just assumes everything is material for promissory means, to account eventually for all of the spiritual world in terms of patterns of neural activity. This belief, so he's talking about those who say everything is just in your head, it's an illusion that you love your mind. It's just an illusion. You have no free will. You're just following the synapses of your brain. You're an animal, a creature, no different than the uh, instinct of a child, a, a baby rabbit to suck along the teeth of its mother. You're no different. You're just a creature of instinct. Uh, uh, morals are an illusion. Love is an illusion. The purpose of life is just an illusion. Only thing that can be proven is scientific. And here's what we know. You're a mass of body with, uh, you know, you're a mass of, of organs, and these organs will die while you're here. Propagate the human race. If you're not fit, you won't survive. There's the end of your story. So he's saying this promissory materialism, scientific reductionism is a problem to try to account for everything. He said this belief must be classed as superstition. So here you can see kind of hits the ball back on their board. He says you're calling us superstitious. He says if you think you can explain everything in a laboratory, you're the one that's superstitious. And here's the most important part. He says we have to recognize that we are spiritual beings with souls existing in a spiritual world as well as material beings with bodies and brains existing in a material world. Isn't it something that the one who studied the brain the most to win a Nobel Prize himself, he admits that to say everything can be explained just by looking at the material brain is superstition. So my friends, I want to review with you today. Number one, you are God's creation. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He has crowned you with glory and honor. You are made in the image of God. You are special. And number two, he loves you, has a plan for your life, and that's what he wants you to discover here today and for the rest of your life, how to please him. Can you say amen if you believe that? Amen. And here's where we get to the, the sad part of the story. We are sinners, and you are a sinner. Psalms 51.5, we're the creation of God, but we're also sinners. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of what ties us all together. To, you know, Because if you want to understand how this body, soul, and spirit has got so jacked up, you now have to understand the story of how we became sinners. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and I think this will begin to tie it together for you and why there is a world of pain and suffering. Psalms 51.5 says it like this, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We call this original sin, and it came from Adam and Eve's disobedience. Now, if we believe the story of the Bible, and I always like to ask everybody, believe it while you're here in the context of church, as I believe Lord of the Rings in the context of being in the movie theater. We can pretend we're watching it right now. Just think of the story and how the Bible presents it. And I think if you start there, you'll find that it's not only a myth or a good story, but it's actually the explanation. So let's start at the beginning. We're made in God's image. We're created by God, body, soul, and spirit. The body is just the shell we live in. Our soul is the expression of who we are and our spirit. And we're living in this world, and the Bible says we're naked, and we don't even know it. And how I like to look at that is if you look up at these bright lights right here, if you just look at this light with me right now, you might have to squint for a little bit. But can you make out the translucent bulb as you look at that light? 
No, you can't make it up. Can you see a label on there or the wattage? And after you're looking away, I'm seeing spots everywhere now, so don't go too long. Can you see that? No, but if you turned off the light and you unscrewed it, you would see, oh, it's made by GE. It's a 100-watt bulb. You could see it. But right now, you can't. You see, when man was in the garden, his flesh wasn't what was important, even though he had it. It was the Spirit shining through him. He was in the glory of God. Remember, he was crowned with the glory of God. He was crowned with the honor and the power of God. He was even more special to God in that garden than the angels of heaven. He was more special. Adam and Eve was more special to God than all of the mountain ranges, all of the constellations, and all of the stars. He was crowned with glory, the Bible says. And yet God gave him a free will. And we have to understand that God did not want us as parakeets locked in a cage without a choice. So he opens up the cage. He says, you stay here, you can call it home, and I'll provide for you. You fly out, you can do whatever you want. And here's how the story goes. He set up two trees for them to make their decision every day. And the tree of life was set there to continue to give them life and substance so that they could live in that bliss of glory and honor with God. And the Bible actually says they walked with God face to face in the cool of the day. So here was that tree they could receive their spiritual substance and their physical substance from every day. And there was another tree that was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible says after a certain amount of time, we don't know how long, Adam and Eve go to this knowledge of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they meet here the tempter. Now Satan, we find out, was a fallen angel himself, because even angels have choices of who they serve. So Satan had made his choice. He wasn't going to serve God. And God allowed Satan to be there. And somebody said, well, this is unfair. Why would God allow Satan to be there? You know why? Because God wanted to say, whoever stayed in this garden had the best opportunity to leave. Not just a half opportunity to leave. He wanted to give man the best opportunity to make the wrong choice. You might say, well, that's unfair. Well, this was God's way of saying, you won't stay here because I made you. Now, when we get to heaven, we can ask God about the free will proposition. And we can say, God, I wish you just would have made me a robot, would have never had any choice, and I would have never known any better. Well, he'll tell you why he didn't make you that robot that never would have had a free will, never would have known any better. But here on this earth, play the story out. Man has a choice, and now Satan is a tempter. He tells a lie. And what does he say? He says, when you eat of this tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall become like God. Your eyes will be open, and you will know good from evil. And eat of this tree, and instantly, the Bible says, they began to die. Jesus had said to him in the garden, if you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall die. Well, what happened in that garden of Eden? Did they instantly fall over into death at that moment? No. Did they become brain dead? Did their soul and their ability to have a personality, did that instantly die in that garden? No, because they're communicating, they're having a personality. But what is the first thing they notice at this death? That they're naked. The light had gone off. They knew at this moment that spiritually, they were no longer the people they once were. And now they experience emotions and feelings and confusions that they had never felt before. Jesus comes walking in the cool of the day. They run and hide themselves out of fear now to be with God, where God used to be their best friend. They then take up leaves from off the ground and try to make a covering, and they hide. And now when God begins to talk about their sin, Adam and Eve begin to blame each other and blame the serpent when it was always their fault to begin with. At the very beginning, we see that God made us good. 
God gave us a good place to live, and God made our relationship with Him good. But He gave us a good free will and a good opportunity to lose it all if we wanted to, and we did. And from that time forward, from Adam and Eve, we are born into sin. Now at this point you might say, well, Pastor Joe, that's unfair that Adam and Eve's sin has come to me when I did nothing. Granted, that may be fair. But it's also not fair that Jesus would come down from heaven to earth, die for your sins as an innocent man, and give you salvation as a free gift. So what we see in the Bible is that there is an injustice done to the human race, and then it's met with justice done by God in the flesh. So my friends, when you get to heaven, you can say, God, why did you make a world that would have choices of bad and evil and a place where injustice would be a part of our life and have a choice then of justice? Why would you make us feel pain to experience joy? Once again, you can go to God and ask him these things, but I find the Bible to be consistent with the world I live in and I put my trust in. And if you don't believe you're a sinner, let me give you an example here. Now, here's a child with a cookie jar. And, uh, you know, what we see as parents is that our children have a way of disobeying us at such an early age. Maybe you had younger siblings that used to babysit. I just want to ask a question. Who's teaching all these children to lie? Who's the one running behind parents' back and saying, Bethany, you need to lie to daddy to get away with that? Who's the one doing this? Isn't it within our nature? I think about my daughter, Bethany. She loves to wear her little Dora slippers all over the house. But when she gets into, the, gets into the bed or the couch, I say, Bethany, you have to take off the Dora slippers. And so she'll take off the little Dora slippers and she'll sit down. Well, yesterday I go over and I see her with her Dora slippers on. And I ask her, I say, Bethany, you know better, please take those off. And she takes those off and the Dora slippers off and I begin to walk away. And I can hear a little rustling over there in the couch. And I come back and guess what I find? Bethany is wearing those Dora slippers. Isn't, isn't that the heart of a child? It's all there. It's in every one of us. And if you were had a, a camera on Bethany, you could almost see her doing something like this. As Daddy walks away, she looks at me. Then she looks at her sandals. As Daddy walks away some more, she quickly grabs the sandals. And she's still looking at Daddy. Then she quickly puts on the sandals and sits just like this, hoping Daddy doesn't come. Doesn't that sound just like Adam and Eve? Over 6,000 years later of human history, all of the best science that we have, all of the best geneticists, and we're still doing the same thing today. And some of you might say, well, Pastor, you know, I'm really not all that bad. Sure, I might have took some cookies out of the cookie jar. Maybe I might have worn my slippers when I wasn't supposed to. So today, what I want to do to help you really realize who you are, your creation of God, body, soul, and spirit made in His image, but to help you understand you're a sinner, I want you to take the good person test with me. Look at your notes as we're taking it. Now, I simply just want you to write yes or no to these questions. Number one, have you ever put something before God? Whether it was your job, whether it was your family, whether it was your sports and hobbies, did you ever put something before God? Number two, have you ever worshipped something other than God? Did you ever worship an idol? Did you ever worship the TV, sports entertainment? Did you ever worship yourself and be all about you? How about number three? Have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever said Jesus Christ but not in prayer? Have you ever said God damn it and you weren't talking about the devil? Have you taken his name in vain? Number four, have you ever placed things before going to church? Wow, there's a lot of empty seats today. I wonder 
and people have placed things before going to church. How about number five? Here's a good one. Maybe our parents need to help us on the good person test. Have you ever disobeyed your parents? Anybody here ever did that? How about we go on now? We're only halfway through, so hang in there if you're a good person. How about number six? Have you ever cursed at someone in anger? How about in traffic, getting on the bus, or somebody step on your toes, right? Where you ever curse them out? How about number seven? Have you ever wished to have sex with someone outside of marriage? You know that you're already feeling by this point, aren't you? Let's keep going. Number eight, have you ever taken something that didn't belong to you? In life, have you ever taken something that wasn't yours? Number nine, have you ever lied? Now make sure you don't lie right now, but have you ever lied? Number 10, oh, this is a good one. I know we all deal with this. Have you ever been jealous? My friends, what was the good person test? Does anybody know? The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, my friends. After taking the good person test, how did you do it? You failed, didn't you? I failed. You might say, Pastor, why didn't you commit the big ones? I didn't murder. I didn't rape. I, you know, I haven't stolen big things. You don't understand the Bible. Then. You don't understand morality. God doesn't look at things the way you look at things. You go back to the story, remember Adam and Eve? They didn't murder somebody in the garden that day. They had disobeyed God and ate a fruit that he said not to. How much more meaningful could you get than that? Don't eat the fruit. You might say, well, I never disobeyed my parents and did drugs. Did you ever come home late? Did you ever smart off to them? That's disobedience. I didn't steal anything big. Did you steal anything at all? It's still stealing. If somebody today was on uh, trial for being a murderer, a murderer, and, and they said, I only did it once. Did that matter to you? I'll, I'll admit it, I did it, but I only did it once. You see, sometimes we say, well, I only took his name and paid once, but just today. We counted up all of your sins. We added them all together, and you faced judgment. How many accounts of treason and law-breaking would be held against you today? Thousands upon thousands, if not millions. For some of us, <laughs> Praise God for His grace. Amen? So you're a sinner. Let's just reiterate it now. Romans 3, 9 through 12. We're all in the boat with you, so don't be afraid. It says, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So can anybody pass that good person test? No one. The only person that was able to pass that good person test was Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about him in just a moment. But not only are you a creation of God, body, soul, spirit, being this image of sinner, but it gets worse before it gets better. You're under the wrath of God. God is actually angry with you because of the sins that you've committed. I know a lot of times we want to think about Jesus as Barney walking on the earth saying, I love you, you love me, let's just be a big happy family. But Jesus actually was only loving us because he came to forgive us. He actually comes back a second time, reading in Revelation. This time he's not as a little baby in a manger. He's a conquering king on a white horse. On the day of God's judgment and wrath, it's called Armageddon. 300 million will die in battle, and the blood will be as high as a horse's head for over 180 miles. Think of a river of blood, 180 feet, 180 miles long, 
about six feet high. That's what will happen on Judgment Day. Because sinners do not repent of their sins. Let's look at Romans 1.18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Going back to the good person test. Whether you believe in God or not, would you not have to admit that if not all of them, they are impressed on your heart. If not all of them, at least most of them are impressed on your heart. You know lying is wrong, but you do it anyway because you suppress the truth. You know having sex before marriage is wrong, you suppress the truth. You know there's something dirty about jealousy, but you suppress it. You know you're supposed to obey your parents, but you suppress it anyways. Is that not exactly what the Bible says? That we choose to not do what's right and suppress what we know? Well, let's continue on. It gets a little bit tougher on us, but let's read it before it gets good. Romans 2, 4 through 6, the same author, Paul, he says this. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Meaning God is asking every single one of you today, do you not know the reason why I don't send you to hell and slap you upside your head every time you sin? It's because I'm kind. It's because I'm tolerant. It's because I'm patient. And I'm wanting you to repent. People say to me all the time, well, what about those who have never heard about the gospel? God's waiting for you to go tell them. God is being kind, giving them time. What about those who have done all these wicked, evil things? God is being patient with them. What about the ones they've hurt? God will judge those people, and God will make it right in his time. But right now, God is still letting free moral agents run about this world on the playground. He said, recess was forever. One day, Jesus is coming back to this playground called Earth. He will punish those of his children who have been disobedient. So do not think that his tolerance, and patience, and his kindness is him saying it's okay. It's exactly the opposite, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, repentance simply means I'm doing things, I'm going in this direction, God says it's sin, I say I'm sorry, and I do an about face, and I stop doing those things that once used to displease God. But God says that many of us, we know what we're doing wrong, but we're stubborn. We don't want to admit it's wrong. I talk to people having sex outside of marriage, and it's stubborn for them to admit that it's wrong. I talk to people who are dealing with jealousy and greed and envy, and they are stubborn to see it God's way, and they don't want to repent. This is who he's talking to. He says, because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment, everybody say righteous judgment, Thank you. When his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. You ever heard the sentence, God will judge me. Don't you judge me. God will judge me. Listen to me, my friends. God will judge me in a way that I or anyone else could ever judge you. He will hold you accountable one day. Every thought that you have said will be laid bare before his courts. Every actions and things you've done in secret will be laid wide open. All of the times that he spoke to you and you said he wasn't will become clear as day. And your stubbornness and rebellion will be made known before his courts of heaven. One day, my friends, you will go to court. 
That's something you cannot avoid. You will have your day at God's court. You can run as much as you want, but one day you will stand before God's court. And on that day, he will not judge you according to Hitler. Well, I'm so much better than Hitler. Hitler will not be your standard. He is not the ruler you will be judged by. You'll say, I'm so much better than those other people, those rapists. That will not be the standard you will be judged by. You will be judged by the perfect law, the Ten Commandments, and the perfection of Jesus Christ, who lived it without any sin. Jesus will be the one you are compared to. Jesus will be the one that your life is held up next to. And the perfect law of God will be there. Can you think of your excuses right now? You think they'll matter in front of God. Well, God, everybody else was doing it. I'm talking to you. He's not looking at everybody else. He's holding you accountable. But God, my parents did this. They taught me this. God will say, you are accountable. Not your parents. Their day is another day. But God, it was so hard for me to stop doing those things and to do the right thing. God will show you the strength that you had to fight temptation every step of the way. It was no more easier to pick up a cigarette than to not pick up a cigarette. It was all the actions that you were choosing. Now place yourself in God's position. Place yourself there as God's righteous judge. If there was a murderer today that stood before the court. He had murdered he had stolen. And not only did he do it once or twice, but now he has done it thousands of times. Tens of thousands of times. And now you're standing there as the righteous judge. If I was to say to this person, are you sorry? And the person goes, yes, I'm sorry. You promised never to do it again. Yes, I promised never to do it again. The person who ran over that child, we just saw the video. You promised never to do it again. Let me ask you a question. If I said to the person, all of the charges against you, all of these things have been done. But I'll just let you know. Would you be happy with that? Would you say there was justice done in that courtroom? If I was that judge, would you say I was a good judge? Somebody raped your mother. Somebody uh, stole from your father. Somebody ran over your child. And all they had to do was just say I'm sorry on the day of court. And I could just let them go. Would you say I was a good judge? As a matter of fact, you would be angry, there would be an uproar. We would say, not only is the person in trouble, but this judge now is in trouble because they are judging unrighteously. It is the righteous judge that judges by justice, that deals out punishment fit for the crime. What is the punishment for jealousy? What is the punishment for anger towards God's creation? What is the punishment for sexual immorality? What is the punishment for rebellion? What is the punishment for storing up treasures on this earth and being greedy? The Bible says it very clear. The punishment is an eternal separation from God. You might say, Pastor, that's unfair that God would send somebody to hell forever. But what they don't understand and what you may not understand is that God is a forever God. And so you're choosing either Him forever or your sins forever. And this is the place of choice. Right now, you decide, do I stay stubborn? Do I stay unrepentant and pay for it forever in eternity? Because that is my choice. Or do I take on the, the second uh, the last thing, the second option, which is number five here, is the good part. Do I accept Christ's forgiveness here on earth before I face judgment? Do I humble myself here, not have a stubborn heart, not have an unrepentant heart, 
but recognize that God's creation. I was made body, soul, and spirit in his image. I was made to know him, but we have sinned and turned away from him. And I deserve the punishment, but I'll accept the mercy in place. Romans 5, 7 through 8 says it like this, one of the most famous verses in the Bible that you'll ever hear. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. I want you to understand this. The Bible is saying, would you die for a good person? Would you have put in your place in that man's way to stop running over that child? Would you spare somebody's life like that? Yes, you would. Most of us here would have a courageous heart to save the innocent, to spare those who are suffering. But would you die for Hitler? Would you give your life for your enemy? Would you spare Osama bin Laden? Would you give your life for those who have killed and raped your family? You see, God, in verse 8, demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. Christ didn't die for you because you're such a good person. You're so sweet on your good days. You have old ladies across the street. No, Christ died for you knowing you as a secret liar, knowing you as a hidden one with jealousy, knowing that you have perverted thoughts in your heart, thoughts of anger. He died for you while you lived and trespassed him as an enemy, as a vagrant sinner wandering across this earth against God. That's when he died for you. When when you were at your worst, when all of us were lost, when none of us were seeking God, when all of us were lawbreakers, Christ said, I died for sinners. That is the story of the cross. And that's what makes Jesus so special, is he's not just helping those who help themselves. He's not just coming here for those who are good and chosen. He is coming for sinners. The greatest example of this is seen in the life of Judas, his very betrayer. And I would dare to say that all of us have Judas within us. Judas walked with Jesus and knew his ways intimately. All of us know the truth on the inside, and we know it very intimately. And yet we turn our back against God, and we choose temporary things. Judas loved money, and he knew he could make a deal off of Jesus, and by betraying him, he could get what he wanted. And the result was Jesus' crucifixion. And how often do we trade Jesus for the things in this world that we want? I'm reminded of the play that we've done in our youth group. And I'll demonstrate it for you here in this theater right now. There's a young girl. And she's getting ready for the day. And she has her Bible open. And there she opens up the Bible. Jesus comes into the room. He's smiling. He's excited. And uh, he taps her on the shoulder and they hug. And he sits down and Jesus does not say anything, but he's acting it out. It's, the word is being read. He's pushing it into her heart. It's becoming real. His grace is all over her life. But then all of a sudden she gets a phone call from one of her friends. And Jesus kind of steps aside. She takes the phone call. She goes, great, I'd love to go out today. I'm great, let's go have fun. And she instantly just shuts the Bible. And she says, Jesus, I'm going to come back later.
later. Because you know what? Friend wants to come over right now. So Jesus, you just stay right here. And I want to finish up my homework real quick so I can go out with my friend. And she shuts the Bible and she puts it on uh, her nightstand. And she gets out her homework and she starts doing it. And Jesus comes with the Bible next to her. He opens the Bible. Just lovingly kind of tugs at her heart. Nudges her. Ask her if you want to read the Bible. No, Jesus, no, I, I've got to do these things. This is so important, Jesus. I've got to do my homework. My friend's coming over. This is what I'm about. And she kind of pushes Jesus away because he's getting a little bit insistent. And so she pushes Jesus away. And then there, before you know it, the knock comes on the door. Her friend is there, and her friend is excited. She embraces her friend, and she's ready to go out. And here Jesus comes with the Bible, and Jesus is, you know, smiling. He's wanting to be with her. But she says, no, Jesus, no, no, Jesus. You stay here. I'm going to go out with my friends. And when I come back, then we'll hang out, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't want to take no for an answer. He comes one more time. He comes with the Bible open. He comes with the heart of love. And all of a sudden, she takes Jesus' hand and she says, Jesus, I told you. And then he takes, he takes his feet. You stay right here and crucifies him. And she walks out in selfishness as Jesus is on the cross. Because of this young girl's selfishness, Jesus, you stay right here. Christianity is not a religion of coming to church on Tuesdays or Sundays. Christianity is not just every now and then opening your Bible. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's understanding that Jesus paid the price for you and that everything you do, you are to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Judas, after he betrayed Jesus to go to the cross, he comes to give him a kiss. And what does Jesus call Judas that day when he comes? He says, friend. Jesus called Judas his friend. Why? Because Jesus still loved a betrayer like Judas and if you see yourself like that today, I want to let you know that Jesus still loves you and still has a plan for your life. Would you stand with me today? Vanessa, would you come, please? Thank you for your attention today in the, the lesson. We want to encourage you to live for God in this church and that you would understand that this is who you are and that God has a plan and a purpose for you. You see, this is who you are according to the Bible. You are a creation of God. That's what you are. You're made special. You're made in this image. You are a body that has a soul with a mind, will, and emotions that is operated by a spirit. Because of sin, you are a sinner. And because of the sins you personally have committed, you are under the wrath of God. But you also are loved by Jesus, given the opportunity to have forgiveness today. So you are all of these things when we ask the question, who am I? You are a creation of God. You are body, soul, and spirit. You are a sinner. You are under the wrath of God. You are loved. So therefore the question remains, are you forgiven? Because when you walk out of here today, you don't have to leave 
the same way you came. You can say, I know who I am. I'm his. I'm forgiven. My life has been changed. The Bible says that the moment we get saved, that light starts getting in our heart brighter and brighter. That's the born again experience, and it gets brighter and brighter. And one day we will take off this flesh and be known just as he is known. We will dwell with him forever. But that choice doesn't come on court day. We don't decide to do the right thing in court. We do the right thing now while we're here by accepting who he is and asking for forgiveness. Let's pray closing tonight. Jesus, we just talked about you tonight to discover who we were. I pray that none of us will leave out here the same way we came. And that if there's any here today, God, that need that forgiveness, God, they'll do it from their heart tonight. With every head bowed and eyes closed, I want to ask you a question. Are you forgiven? Are you forgiven? If you're not, you can just start to ask the Lord right now to forgive you. We don't need to go to a priest. We don't have to do it another time. You can do it right now. In your heart, you can say this simple prayer. I'm going to teach it to you. It's a prayer of repentance. You can say, Lord, I believe in you. And I know you died on the cross for me. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And then you can begin to name off those sins and say, Lord, forgive me for disobedience to my parents, thoughts of perversion, and you can go through that list today and be forgiven of everyone. So let's start to do that before we sing right now. Giving you a chance to pray, to say, you're my Lord and Savior. I believe you died for me so I can be forgiven and I want to get it off my heart tonight. Just as the music plays, come on, just talk to him tonight, friends. We'll have our altar workers at the end, but right now you just need to talk to Jesus. Because who you are is tied to who he is. You either choose to reject or accept him today. That's what makes the difference. A few more moments in this place. If anybody is perfect here, you are dismissed. This is not for perfect people. This is for all the rest of us. We need forgiveness. We know who we are and are trying to, we're not going to hide it anymore. We're going to stop pretending. See, some people believe as you're praying right now, some people say, if I just work on a few things, I'll be better. No, my friends, your whole hard drive is corrupted. You need a new hard drive. Your heart is evil. You need a new heart, friends. You don't just need a little remodeling. You need renovation. you got to have some demolition work done. You've got to have some uprooting of junk taken out of your life. This is not a quick fix or a self-help. To be who God wants you to be, it's a total abandonment. It's a hitting of reset. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, whoever is in Christ Jesus is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Everything has become new. Just a few more moments for those who are praying prayers of forgiveness. Please don't go. We're going to sing a few songs. A few verses of the song, then I'll pray and dismiss with altar workers to pray for you. But first, I want you to talk to him because you are his creation. He loved you enough to take all your sins. You can make a trade right now.
Just keep playing. Oh, oh great Father. Vanessa. Come on, a few more moments right now. A few more moments. You and God. Thank you, Lord. Jesus. We're going to sing the verse right here in the chorus. All I am finally I surrender. Just sing it out if that's your heart. Finally I